0: I Ching One by Joan Sutherland. This is the first of two talks on the I Ching, or Book of Change, given by Joan Sutherland at Sarah Gordo in June of 2008. Good evening, everyone. It's, um, it's great to be here. I've been- gone for three weeks, and um, I'm really enjoying being back and being here and seeing all of you. But one of the nicest parts of it was um, having been gone, and as, as most of you know, I just moved here last summer, having been gone, I, when I came back, it really felt as though I was coming home to San and that was a very, very nice feeling. What I want to talk about tonight is some of what I was doing in the second half of that um, Away, I was up in Vaisitos uh, in the snow, <laughs> Blizzard, in this incredibly beautiful place, and doing a retreat with um, Stephen Harcher about the I Ching. The I Ching is an old Chinese book of divination that usually gets translated into English as the Book of Changes. Um, and the reason I was doing that goes back a long time. Um, again, as many of you know, I'm really interested in the Chinese roots of this tradition of meditation and koans, um, which is was called Chan, which is the Chinese pronunciation of the word that's pronounced Sen in Japanese. And... Um, It has seemed to me forever and ever that as Chan and Zen came to the West, to America and other places, um, a lot of the mythology of it was dropped away, didn't come with it. We got a lot of the practice, we got a lot of the philosophy, but we didn't get a lot of the mythology. And it was my hunch that we, um, we were missing something important with that. That in any way, um, there's a lot of the life of the heart and of the soul and of the imagination that's tied up with the mythology and the stories of things. And so if you lose that, you lose something of the heart and the soul and the imagination. So... um, Several years ago, I found a a book by Stephen Carter on the I Ching, and it really blew me away because, again, the way we inherited the I Ching was mostly through a very Confucian prison. Confucianists got a hold of it about 2,000 years ago and, and changed it into something different than it had originally been. And Stephen had the the ability for the first time, as near as I can tell, to see through that, the Confucian curtains, and back to the earlier Taoist and even before that, shamanic origins of the I Ching. And in doing that, he laid out this mythological landscape of the China of the first millennium BCE. And I found so much there that survives in the koans, images and sayings and things like that, but also so much there that felt as though it were the mythological landscape of Chan and of the koans. So, um, I met Stephen a while ago, and this retreat came up, and I thought um, it would be very interesting to be immersed in this for ten days, Um, And it turned out, where we were in Vaisitas felt as though we were not only immersed in the mythology, the mythological landscape, but the actual landscape of North China a thousand years ago. It was really, really something. Um, So I have some some sort of preliminary notes, just the the beginnings of some things that I know will be a long exploration for me, um, that I hope you will find. Interesting, um, and I hope you will find in some way uh, enriches your own meditation practice and your koan practice if you're foolish enough to be doing that. So, um, I think what I want to do is begin with an example right away of what I mean. This is a, a little piece of that old Chinese mythology that I found instantly both tremendously interesting and kind of exhilarating and helpful as well so in that world um, when a person dies they sort of split into two parts and um, I think I want to parenthetically say that by 2,500 years ago, the Chinese were a tremendously sophisticated uh, group of people, and so we can assume that they were understanding this uh, metaphorically rather than, than literally just as we understand it metaphorically. Okay, so the, the dead person becomes, there are two aspects of the person after death, and one is uh, the spirit, and that's the part that can become an ancestor. If we do the right things with it, it will become an ancestor, which means we can go on having a relationship with it. And um, it will, in fact, bless us. The other part of the dead person becomes a ghost. Now, this is one of the things that was so interesting to me. The ghost is, in turn, made up of two parts. There's the... um, the, what we might call the karmic residue of the person. There's the stuff that was difficult about that person, the stuff that was painful and caused pain for others and all of that. So that's one part of the ghost. The other part of the ghost is our difficulties. It's our karmic residue about that person. So that we participate in the making of the ghost. The ghost is made up of that person's life and our relationship to that person as well. So that's the first thing that really seemed tremendously interesting to me, that we participate in our ghosts, in the making of our ghosts. So, um, what you did about that was that when, the, the, the sort of the archetypal situation is when a parent dies. When when your parent died, you went into a morning hut, and you spent a pretty good amount of time there, in the morning hut. And When that time was over, you who went in as someone's child, as the child of that parent, come out as an adult in your own right. And what went in as a corpse comes out as an ancestor. So there's a kind of um, syncretic transformation that goes on. Both you and the dead person are transformed. And the spirit part, the part that becomes an ancestor, is the part that's refined and purified after we've dealt with the ghost part, after we've really dealt with what was difficult about that person and what we related to that difficulty um, as. When we've dealt with that part, um, the first job then is to, uh, to, to deal with that and um, therefore, to let this ghost rest in the tomb. So we're saying, okay, you can go. You can sleep through eternity now. You know, you don't need to haunt anybody anymore. Um, and, and another thing that I found um, both moving and helpful is that. The the stuff that was difficult, the stuff that was difficult in that person and in your relationship with that person wasn't thought of as evil or or bad, but was thought of in this way. It was the stuff that had gone past right to decay. So not you don't have to make it bad, you know, but it's past its time. And in passing its time, it's moved past what is full into what is decaying. And um, that decay was seen as as creating sort of miasmas of putrefaction that would cause mind demons. Now that seems like a really true metaphorical expression of something that happens. Stuff gets old. It lives past... It's time, it decays, and it sends up these sort of fumes that create demons in the mind. Okay, so we work with all of that material, and um, to use a much later metaphor, we take that stuff that's, that's decayed and we sort of put it in the great karmic recycler, we let the Tao work on it and for it to come in some other form. And that leaves us with the spirit, with the spirit that can become an ancestor. So the implication is that if we do that work in the morning hut of purifying our relationship with the ghost, we can discover, uncover, recover um, a bit of that dead parent or dead whoever who can bless us who can be an ancestor to us. And an ancestor has responsibilities to us just as we have responsibilities to them. So um, that's an example of the kind of mythology that I sort of want to immediately include that seems useful to me. And um, I'll talk a little bit... More about the, some of the philosophy and some of the other um, some of the other metaphors that, that jumped out at me. Um, okay, so we have a we have a koan from centuries and centuries later that goes like this. Uh, there's a Chinese teacher named Tao Shan, and he's been through this morning period, and he's just taken off his morning clothes. And so one of his students asks him, "What's it like when you take off your morning clothes?" And Sasha replies, "Today I have fulfilled my responsibility to my parents." And the student asks, "Well, what's it like when you fulfill your responsibility to your parents?" And Sasha says, "I love to get drunk." <laughs> now, no one's ever thought that this is a koan, which means, "Oh, party down, they're dead." <laughs> That's not the point. but. but have this mythological context, there's something richer about the koan. Saoshan has been into the mourning Sao Saoshan has done the work of dealing with the stuff that's decaying, that makes up the ghost, has therefore um, developed the ability to have this person be an ancestor, has done all of that and has come out and has put aside his mourning clothes. And in doing that, in fulfilling that responsibility, um, he's able to step into the world and get drunk on the world as his own person. Have a direct relationship with the world and just become completely intoxicated by the beauty of the world. And I think there's a way we can take that the metaphor a step further. And we do that over and over again in our practice when we're willing to step into the warning hut for a while, when we're willing to do the work that arises naturally in meditation, if we're paying attention to our meditation, then over and over again we can step out and be free of something which enables us to be intoxicated with the world as we experience it, unmediated by the decay and the putrefaction and the karmic residues. Um, There were lots of things, lots of ways I saw similarities between the the hexagrams and the koans. Are you all familiar with the e-generalizing hexagram? Do you know what I mean? No? Okay. Um, it's It's a divination system and there are 64 hexagrams, which are graphs made up of six lines of different kinds. Or 30, actually 32 pairs of hexagrams like that, um, and you do a certain operation to get the hexagram, and then the hexagram certain meanings that gives you the divination. Each of the hexagrams is made up of two trigrams, two graphs made up of three lines of different kinds, and um, they're quite they're quite beautiful. The trigrams, So just as a, as a couple of examples of that. There's a kind of primal pair in the trigrams of the earth and the dragon. And then there are three daughters and three sons as well. So there are eight trigrams altogether. together. And um, the eldest daughter, who I'll talk about some more in a moment, is um, co-penetrating. She's like the wind. She penetrates everywhere. There's no place she can't go, and there's nothing she can't accomplish through that ability to penetrate like the wind. Um the middle daughter is uh, is called radiance and she's the fire, she's bright and uh, illuminating. And um and the youngest son, for example, is the mountain, and he's both the stillness of the mountain and also the limit of things. You know, he marks the boundary where the world ends. So they're quite rich images in and of themselves, and they interact in different ways in these hexagrams. Um and one of, the, one of the things that seems quite similar between the hexagrams and the koans um, is that the, the koans don't work in a logical way. They're not um, allegorical, they're metaphorical. By which I mean the koans don't say, okay, so the world is like this, and it's like this, and it's like this, and it happens in the sequence, and if you just sort of get the structure and you pay attention to the sequence, you'll be okay. Um, the koans say, the world is like this, <laughs> it's changing all the time and we never know what's coming at us and it's not logical. And the goal isn't to be able to figure out how to manipulate that stuff as it comes at us. The goal is to learn how to be fluid and flexible internally so that whatever comes at us, we, we can dance with it, we can deal with it in some way. And the the um, this system of the hexagrams is... Um, is very much like that. So, like the koans, um, Sun, who's the the, the eldest daughter, the penetrating wind, penetrates everywhere and shows um, where the work needs to be done and where things are clear. Um, And somehow that feels very much like a koan to me which comes and penetrates everywhere, like invisibly like the wind and shows what is clear and what is not yet clear. So an important um, aspect of of the I Ching, which certainly comes into the koans, is the idea of how important it is to be able to hold the opposites, that you can hold two things that are apparently contradictory or paradoxical simultaneously. And you neither have to resolve them into one, they don't have to become one, they can remain two, and that's okay. Nor do you have to pick one or the other, that you can hold both at the same time. And that's a theme that comes up over and over and over again uh, in the I Ching. One of the very useful distinctions that the I Ching makes about distinction is the distinction between discrimination and judgment that if you're holding two things, it's really good to be able to discriminate them, to say, this is this and this is that. And it's good to be able to discriminate them because you might want to attend to them differently, depending on their different natures. So if you've got a ghost in one hand and a spirit in the other hand, if you can discriminate ghosts from spirit, you can attend to them in their proper ways. And you can do that without judgment which is saying this one's good and this one's bad and I need to pick this one and annihilate this one. So that's a kind of nice distinction between discrimination and judgment. Um, and in the in the E system, when you can hold the opposites like that and discriminate but not judge and not choose, there's a gate that opens in the heart and what's called the bright omen comes in. So we we allow something to happen when we're willing to hold the opposites. The bright omen comes into our heart and there's a moment of an epiphany. So that's the nature of the epiphany in the I is that willingness to stay with the opposites, be apparent opposites. Um, and in doing that, there's, there's an epiphany that happens in our hearts. Um, Originally, like 3,000 years ago, the E was actually involved in a shamanic practice of, of making literal rain, you know, making it, the rainfall when it was needed. And then over time, that sense of rainmaking became metaphorical, where every epiphany, every time we're willing to hold the opposites and the bright omen comes into the heart, and we have an epiphany, is a small moment of rainmaking for ourselves and for the world. There's a little piece of the world, a little tiny infinitesimal piece of the world that we redeem every time we have that kind of epiphany. Um, And there is is a tradition of that in Chan and in Zen. There's an old tradition of that in Buddhism. Um, It's said that when Shakyamuni woke up under the bow tree, uh, all the prison doors and all the jails opened up and people were free people who were stuck in hell were freed from hell. So that sense of the whole world waking up together in that moment comes, it is also in this tradition of the E that we make a little rain, we bless the world with a little fertilizing moisture. Every time um, we have an epiphany that comes from our willingness to stay with the opposites. It was called uh, the E holding two worlds in one thought, which I kind of like a lot, holding two worlds in one thought. Um, So, there's also a way in which both the hexagrams of the I Ching and the koans are a mode of communication between those two worlds. And you can divide it, you can divide it, those two any way you want. You know, the world of form and the world of emptiness, the world of, the human world and the spirit world. The, um, you know, there's a, there's a, the the unconscious world and the conscious world, the inner landscape and the outer landscape. Whatever whatever way you want to think about it, or ways you want to think about it, uh, it's not it's not just a matter of holding both of those at the same time but of letting them talk to each other, of letting them communicate and stay connected so that they don't get really polarized. Because the problem is, not that they're two things, but that when they get, when we make this big duality and they get really polarized. So um, earlier this year, we were talking a lot about a reconciliation of the worlds of form and emptiness. Some of you probably remember that. And this is another way of talking about that, that we can, we can keep those worlds from being split apart too far, keep them connected and talking with each other. They don't have to, one doesn't have to become the other, but they have to sort of remain in communication. Um, and this sense of walking in both worlds, of having a, a, a foot in both worlds, in the, in the mythology of the E is uh, embodied by you, the Limping God, uh, and in, in Buddhism, in Zen and Chan by Bodhidharma. Um, Bodhidharma is the, the person who brought Buddhism from India to China, according to the legend. But um, when he was old, he decided to go back to India, and he was last sighted climbing in the mountains on his way back to India wearing one sandal. So that, that image of one foot shod, one foot barefoot, one foot in one world, one foot in the other, is an image that persists all the way through. is that beautiful? Yeah. Um, so that's a, that's a holding of the opposites together. and not allowing them to become polarized, but having one foot in each world. Okay, and I'll tell you um, one more story that I'll stop tonight. Maybe I'll keep going on another night if this is interesting to people. Um, this, is a, this is a little vignette that comes out of... Uh, Four hexagrams in, in the E uh, that again to me is quite moving and powerful in ways that I'm not entirely clear about yet. But uh, the idea is that there are two brothers, and one of the brothers is the new king in the city. He's gotten the mandate to rule, and he's, and he's in the city, and things are, are good. He's the abundant king, so everything works really well, and there's enough of everything, and the stoplights work on time, and the trains go, all that. But he can't exist by himself, he has a brother, um, who's called the wandering sage, and the brother's job is to go out, out of the city gates and into the borderlands, into the, the wild places, and to just walk around in the wild places, and in doing that, in having one brother in the city, kind of making sure the trains are running on time, and one brother out on the borderlands watching and noticing what's going on. The wandering sage, the brother notices that something's happening at the border. That the Lady of Fates, which is another name for sun, penetrating the penetrating wind, the Lady of Fates has showed up at the border. Now, if you don't have the brother out there walking, the hinterlands, walking through the wild places, you won't know the lady of Fates has shown up at the border. It's a tremendously beautiful image to me. So he escorts her back into the city. He brings her into the city and brings the king and the lady of fates together. And um, in that way, the, the the city is renewed. But, but without the so, you know, you can sort of see this as an internal process. You know, there's the part of us that makes sure that we're fed and we sleep sometimes. And, you know, the kids get fed and, and the bread gets paid and all that stuff. That's the good king in the city. But you need this part who's also out walking the borderlands, who will notice when the Lady of Fates shows up and starts knocking at the gate and will bring her in to make her part of this triad. And uh, as I say, I think I'll just I'll just leave it there. And uh, oh, I'll say actually I'll say one more thing. Um, there's there's a sense that if you combine if you combine all of those people into one, if you combine those three into one, then there's a sense that we're called to leave the city every once in a while. That the city represents who we've become, you know all of the stuff that makes us who we are in the world. And that every once in a while, we have to be willing to leave the city and walk out into the wilderness and rediscover the pure intent that caused us to build the city in the first place. And that we have to keep doing that in order to renew our own lives. So that we have to be all three of those characters. Um, in cycles over and over again in our lives. And when we've gone out to the wilderness, remembered the pure intent, then come back into the city and keep living our life with perhaps the changes we make as a result of that encounter. And if that's true about our lives in the world as represented by the city, it's also true about our spiritual lives. Um, The same character, uh, over time, ascends the sacred mountain, which is the the process of spiritual life, and gets to the top of the sacred mountain and finds the temple there and stays there. And it's beautiful. You know, the view is good from the top of the mountain. But after a while, even that, even that sojourn in the temple at the top of the mountain becomes a trap, becomes a way of limiting us, and you have to come back down the mountain into the ordinary village, into the, the thoroughfares of ordinary life to escape the trap even at the top of the sacred mountain. So those cycles in the e just endlessly renew themselves, and um, so then you go back and you climb the mountain again, and you come back down again, and it happens over and over again. Um, and I can grow kind of tired of the, you know, the enlightenment mythology where it's all sort of a linear, like from from here to there, and once you're there, you're done. And I find myself refreshed by this sense of the cycles, of the sense of walking out into the wilderness and back into the city, and up the sacred mountain and down again, and that all of that is necessary for um, a completely realized spiritual life and life in the world. So thank you for your attention and This talk is offered as a benefit for members of Awakened Life. If you would like to become a member or give Donna to John Sutherland, please visit awakenedlife.org.